You're listening to the Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. Uh, we are thrilled and honored uh, to have Matt Curlin with us. Matt is the Assistant Vice President of Spiritual Life at Sanford University, also uh, the University Minister. So we are uh, excited to have him. Matt has been a member here for, what, over 10 years now? almost 11 years. So uh, he taught for some time in the university ministry and has uh, been teaching in the young professionals ministry for, what, a little over two years now. So uh, we're excited to have him. Matt uh, is going to talk about stories tonight. And uh, Matt got his PhD at Baylor uh, writing about C.S. Lewis. Uh, and he, he, just, he was just telling me he compared uh, and contrasted uh, Lewis's apologetics, uh, how you deal with suffering, uh, in his fiction versus his nonfiction. So I'm sure Matt's going to uh, rely heavily on Lewis, C.S. Lewis tonight, uh, read some of, some of his stuff. Um, so for those of you uh, taking notes, looking for questions, uh, we are going to be looking at questions 1, 8, 15, and 19. 1, 8, 15, and 19 tonight, for those of you processing, uh, like myself. Uh, before we begin... Um, I'm going to read a little excerpt from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, if you have kids, you may be familiar with this. If not, it's just really great to read. Uh, it's so good. Um, so I'm going to read a little excerpt from this. I'll pray for us, and then Matt will come up. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you have spoken to us through words and through the word, Jesus. And so, God, as we look at stories tonight, we pray that, um, that you would help us to see how all of the stories that we tell echo, in some sense, the bigger story of the gospel. Help us to see stories and literature through the lens of the gospel we pray for Matt as he comes and he leads us. We pray for clarity of mind, clarity of speech, uh, and that he would uh, help us to see how the gospel relates to all of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matt. I'm going to read briefly from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, which says, For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are God's workmanship. The Greek word there is actually a word poema, which we get the word poem. We are God's poem. We are created by God to do good poema, to do good works, to do good art, to do good poetry, to create as God has created. And so tonight we're going to look at how literature helps us see the world through the lens of the gospel. A few years ago, Tim Keller, who is a pastor in Manhattan, he wrote a, an essay entitled, Why the Church Needs Artists. And he makes three arguments for why artists, musicians, writers, filmmakers, poets, why the church needs these people. He says we need them for three reasons. He says, one, we cannot understand the truth 
without art. In other words, we encounter truth in the abstract, but art helps truth become concrete. For example, I can tell you that parenting is really hard, and that is an abstract concept. But I could tell you a story about when my children had colic at 2 o'clock in the morning and I would drive them around the city because they were going to be screaming anyway and rather have them scream in my car while I'm driving so my wife can sleep for a few hours before she gets up at 5 and goes into her nursing shift and the way we would swap off. And that story makes the truth of difficult parenting become concrete for you. Stories do that. They make the truth become concrete. Without art, we can't know truth. That's Keller's first point. The second point he makes is that we cannot adequately praise God without art. Art helps us praise. This is the purpose of music, but not just music. When Adam first sees Eve, naked and unashamed in the garden, he does not say, wow, uh, women are beautiful. That would be a very abstract way. No, he breaks out into poetry into typical Hebrew poetry. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh in the kind of parallelism that characterizes Hebrew poetry. It's throughout the Psalms. Adam breaks out into poetry. Art helps us to better praise God. And then Keller says, without art, we cannot reach the world. And if you think about people How many people do you know who we could reason into the kingdom of God? More people remain distant from God, not because of a failure of their intellect, but because of a failure of their imagination. They simply can't imagine themselves following after Christ. And so Keller says we need art so that we can communicate to people the imaginative possibility of having faith in Jesus. And so we need artists. The church needs musicians, poets, writers, filmmakers. We need artists. Uh, we need people who can do as God has done. Uh, create. He has created in us his, his poem. We, we, in turn, create poems. We create stories that help usher people into the kingdom of God. So tonight I'm going to talk just a little bit about C.S. Lewis, and then I'm going to read some excerpts from his writing and talk about his coming to faith and what role literature played in his faith, because probably better than anyone we could pick, C.S. Lewis brings together the best of Christian faith and literature. So let me just begin by telling you a little bit about his life, and I'll begin by saying that as a kid, Lewis was confirmed in the Anglican church, baptized as a child, as an infant, But at age 10, his mother died, and his father shipped him and his brother off to a series of boarding schools. And the trauma of that stage of his life led him to conclude that there was no God. And so for much of his life, he was an avowed atheist, an adamant defender of atheism. He studied at Oxford, and while he was at Oxford, he began to study British literature and He studied at University College, Oxford, and as a student of British literature, he became immersed in the ancient Greek mythology and ancient Norse myths and ancient Germanic myths, and he read this literature, studied it intensely, and he says that something was going on in him while he was reading this material. He he says, a young atheist cannot be too careful about what he reads because God was planting some seeds in him that would later grow. When he became a professor at Maudlin College, he became really good friends. By the way, a quick side note, uh, it looks like it should be pronounced Magdalene. It's actually pronounced Maudlin, because the British are weird that way. And when he became a professor, he developed a close friendship with with J.R.R. Tolkien, who you know from Lord of the Rings. And... Um, this is him at, at older, later in life, but this is a picture of Tolkien. And the two of them would take these walks, and they would talk about things related to British uh, literature, and in fact, they helped form a literary group called the Inklings. And the Inklings reshaped the way that scholarly literature was done in Europe for decades, maybe for centuries. And Tolkien and him would have these conversations, and eventually... 
um, Lewis began to inch his way toward faith. In his spiritual autobiography, he, um, he, he says something that's pretty interesting. He says that, um, this is his first step toward conversion. In the Trinity term of 1929, he says, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious truth, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? After being exposed to this literature and these great literary scholars, these men he respected and trusted, these men who were his friends, his, his mind was opened to the possibility of, of faith, and he eventually decided there was a God. He became a theist. This is step one of his conversion to Christian faith. And then the next step happens in an equally kind of ambiguous way. He says, I was driven to Whipsnade, there was a zoo there. I was driven to the zoo one sunny morning, and when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events. It was more like when a man, after long asleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. Now, this is a brilliant literary mind. This is someone who was trained in philosophy. This is someone who was fluent in about five or six languages. This was an Oxford scholar. And yet, when he describes his conversion to faith, he doesn't necessarily tell us in, in his book, Surprised by Joy, he doesn't tell us the reasonable step-by-step way that he came to faith. No, he tells us about the things that he read and the influence they had on him. He fought in World War I. He was in trench warfare and even amidst the horrors of trench warfare in his autobiography, he describes the books he was reading in between battles and the impact that they had on him. And eventually, it wasn't so much reason that brought him into faith, but it was the imaginative possibility of faith that had such an influence on him. And so in that light, I really want to talk about, uh, for a moment, two or three of the, those major significant influences that led him imaginatively to come to faith. And then we'll read some from his, from his books. Uh, first, one author in particular named George MacDonald, who he read throughout his teen years and even into his young adulthood. George MacDonald was a Scottish philosopher and author and minister. And Lewis loved his books. He wrote a lot of fantasy books. And one book in particular called Fantastus, which had a tremendous impact on Lewis. It's a book that is most, mostly delves into Germanic mythology. You know, druids and dwarves and the kinds of creatures you would find in Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia. These were the things he was reading as a young adult. And he says something really curious about reading that book by George MacDonald. He says that when he read that book, when he finished it, he said, that night, my imagination was baptized he said, the rest of me took a little longer, but his imagination was baptized. And he says it was in that moment, even though he didn't realize it at the time, that the imaginative possibility of faith in Jesus occurred to him. Almost on a subconscious level, before he was really cognizant of what was going on with him intellectually, his heart was open. You might say this was a movement of the Holy Spirit that opened him to the possibility. A closed-minded avowed, adamant atheist reads a fantasy book and his imagination is baptized. George MacDonald was one of those influences. I mentioned Tolkien. There was a particular concept in Tolkien that fascinated Lewis. Tolkien was a linguist and was also incredibly familiar with, with stories, with literature, with mythology. And Lewis, for much of his life, believed that in myth the ancient myths that he had read, you found real meaning and beauty, but they weren't true. 
In history, you found truth, but no meaning or beauty. What he was looking for was something that would combine both of them. And Tolkien's argument to Lewis is that the gospel story of Jesus Christ is a myth that also happens to be true. It has all the beauty and meaning of the ancient stories, but it also happens to be an historical fact as well. And this was incredibly influential in winning Lewis over the idea that Christianity is a myth that is also true. Myth in the sense of story, not myth in the sense of falsehood. It was the story that, G, that Lewis read in the, in the Gospels that was, was so compelling. And then uh, the third influence that was profoundly impactful on, his, on Lewis's coming to Christ had to do with literature as what we might call pre-apologetics. Christian apologetics has to do with making an apology or a defense of the faith. And Lewis was writing and living at a time when Christian apologetics was a big deal. People would get together and they would fill, you know, fill auditoriums and they would debate Christian faith. This is the 1950s in the UK. And the intellectual elites would gather and the Oxford dons would gather and they would have these apologetic debates about Christian faith and so forth. And those were less compelling to Lewis in the long run than his encounter with literature. He says literature was really pre-apologetics. He would not have cared about apologetics at all had it not been for the impact that literature had on him first, pre-apologetics. In other words, it was in, in the literature that he read, in the stories that he read, that he encountered meaning and truth and beauty. Those things created in him what he calls joy, this deep sense of longing that he wasn't even sure how to identify. He just knew he wanted more of it. It created in him this insatiable desire to experience it again. And in the end, after Lewis's death, there, he, he, Lewis himself gives three primary arguments for Christian faith. There's the argument from reason, which simply says that if you look at the two options, you can either believe that God created the world or that the whole world is by chance. And he argues that the religious view is more rational. That's the argument from reason. Then there's the argument from morality, which is that if there's a moral universe, if there is right and wrong in the universe, there must be a moral lawgiver. And that was a compelling argument to him. The third argument is the argument from desire. And that's this. Where you find within yourself these longings that nothing in this world satisfies it must mean you were created for a different world. And I present these arguments to students at Sanford all the time, and I, I present the argument from reason, morality, and desire, and I ask them which one of them is the most compelling to you. No one says the argument from reason is the most compelling. Uh, fewer people say that the argument from morality is the most compelling for Lewis and for many of my students, they say it's the argument from desire that's so compelling. It's what compels people to faith is not always purely rational. It's something that takes place in the heart, in the emotions. If I were to ask you, tell me about your most, uh, the, the reason that you stick with your faith through all pain and difficulty and suffering and doubt, you're probably going to tell me about some profound personal experience you had with God, some point in time in your life where God revealed himself to, your, to you in a deep way that kind of defies logic and rationality and reason. Those are the things that draw us to faith. They compel us. It's not that reason doesn't matter. It does. It's just that for Lewis and for a great many people, it is the creative. It is the imaginative that draws us to faith and kind of holds us to faith. It's the imaginative that makes the, uh, the abstract become concrete. All right, pause for a bad pun. Um, there's a story about a guy in, uh, who, you know, who in the neighborhood uh, was known for kind of liking all the kids in the neighborhood, but he had to resurface his driveway, and when they resurfaced his driveway, all the neighborhood kids came, and they wrote their names in the driveway before it dried. They put their handprints and their footprints and so forth, and he got really, really mad, and he you know, went off on all the neighborhood kids, and, and somebody said, hey, look, I thought, what's, what's the deal? I thought you liked kids. And he says, well, I like kids in the abstract. I don't like them in the concrete. <clears throat> Let's pray. Uh, no, uh, literature helps the abstract become concrete. 
And as such, the church needs, we need artists. We need poets and musicians, and we need uh, uh, people who can create. Uh, we are God's poem. We, we create um, as God has created. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how Lewis created and about how his literature has helped shape literally generations of people and how we think about faith and how Lewis serves as kind of a model for how we can engage a culture that, quite honestly, is increasingly skeptical about Christian faith, increasingly skeptical about Christians, and in particular about evangelical Christians. So I'm going to start by, uh, with the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, how many of you read the Chronicles of Narnia maybe growing up or, you know, in your, so that's most everybody um, I read them in college for the first time. I didn't read them as a kid, and I've read them to my kids. And so I have marked a few places to read. And I will say these are written as children's books, but in the preface to the very first book, Lewis says this. Um, he writes it to his goddaughter, uh, Lucy, and he says to her, Lucy, this is a, a kid's book. Uh, maybe you're too old for kid's books, but maybe there will come a time when you are old enough to read kid's books again. And I think that's uh, a pretty profound statement because, honestly, there were times when I was reading these stories to my kids that I had trouble getting through them. You know, I had to pause and, like, you know, dry tears. And my kids looked at me like I'm crazy because I was understanding this on multiple levels. And they were only understanding it on one level, but that one level is so important. So let me give you an example. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the, book, the books are metaphors for Christian faith. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the stone table is a metaphor for the Ten Commandments or the law. And it is on the stone table that all of the laws of Narnia, this is the fictional world that Lewis has created, all the laws of Narnia are written on the stone table. And... It is on the stone table where Aslan himself is sacrificed. He's killed by the witch of Narnia. And I'm going to read to you some excerpts from the story. Um, this is his conversation with the witch. Um, the witch is uh, arguing with her. And Aslan says, tell us uh, what is written on the stone table, what is written in the deep magic. That's what it's called, the deep magic. And the witch says, tell you, I'll tell you what's written on the very stone table which stands before us. I'll tell you what's written in letters as deep as a spear is long on the fire stones on the secret hill. I'll tell you what is engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea. You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia from the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and for every treachery I have a right to kill. And so Edmund is the child in the story who has betrayed his siblings, and now the witch owns his life, and he is to be killed. And it is Aslan who takes his place. And so after Aslan is sacrificed on the stone table, in accordance with the deep magic, the children grieve his, his loss. He, they grieve that he is dead, and then one, uh, the next morning he comes back to life. And the children ask him what it means. And this is how Aslan describes it, or how C.S. Lewis is really describing Christianity to children. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in place of a traitor, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. And in this way, Lewis is telling a story about deep magic and deeper magic, but he's telling another story about law and grace, about the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus in our place to kids who read this all over the world before they can have the abstract ability to understand sacrificial atonement. They understand a lion who takes the place of a child in accordance with the deep magic. They get that 
on some level. This is preparing them. As I was reading this to my children, even as they were growing up in church and in Sunday school and hearing the Bible stories, I'm reading this to them, and I know that in many ways this is preparing them to understand the gospel more deeply. And so we read this even as adults, and the gospel grasps us all over again. In other words, there's one story. The story of the gospel is the story. And the other stories, we like them to the degree. They are compelling to us. They move us to the degree that they reflect the story. All right, another example. So second example comes from the book, uh, The Horse and His Boy. And this is about a horse named Bree who has some doubts. It's a talking horse because this is a Narnian horse, and animals talk in Narnia. And this is a horse who has some doubts that Aslan really exists. So you see in Bree, maybe a reflection of Lewis himself. And Bree says, no doubt, when they speak of Aslan as a lion, they only mean that he's as strong as a lion, or as fierce as a lion, or something of that kind. Even a little girl like you, Avarice, must see that it would be quite absurd to suppose that he is a real lion. Indeed, it would be disrespectful. If he was a lion, he'd have to be a beast just like the rest of us. If he was a lion, he'd have to have four paws and a tail and whiskers. How ridiculous. And then Aslan appears to him. Uh, and says, now, Bree, you poor, proud, frightened horse, draw near. Uh, Nearer still, my son, do not dare to draw near. Touch me, smell me, hear my paws. Here is my tail. These are my whiskers. I am a true beast. And this is Jesus' encounter with Thomas, where he says, place your hands into my hands. Place your hand into my side. And you see Jesus respond to Thomas with a kind of tenderness that Aslan shows Bree. You see in Thomas the kind of skepticism that Lewis experienced, that sometimes we experience. And you see in Aslan the graciousness of a God who doesn't decry our skepticism, but in some respects welcomes it and says, here's the, here's the evidence, right? And Lewis describes this to children. And in a way that says to them, hey, you have some skepticism, that's okay, Look and see. Taste and touch and feel that he is good. All right. How about this story? In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a character. This was made into a movie, by the way. Uh, you, you may have seen the three movies that have been made uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia. So you may have seen the cinematic depiction of this particular scene. Eustace is, is like this nasty kid. He's like everything about a seven or eight-year-old boy that you would find annoying. He's arrogant and boastful. He's rude to people and so forth. He's just a nasty little kid. And at one point in the story, they're on an island, and Eustace finds this treasure, and he wants to hoard it all for himself, and, and it's enchanted treasure, and it turns him into a dragon. And being a dragon is miserable because he can no longer be with his friends, and he can't be on the ship, and he can't be around people, and everybody's afraid of him. He's ugly. He's covered in scales. He, he smells bad, right? He is a beast, the worst kind of beast, the most fearful kind of beast. And at one point, he encounters Aslan, the lion. And this is what it says. The lion told me that I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said these words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I didn't have any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can shed their skins. Oh, of course, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here or there, my whole skin started to peel off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I were a banana. And in the minute or two, I just stepped out of it, and I could see my skin lying there beside me looking rather nasty, and it was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the water for a bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. Oh, that's right, I said. It only means that I had another smaller suit underneath the first one. 
So I started scratching and tearing, and this underneath skin peeled off beautifully, and I stepped out of it and laying beside the other one and went down to the water for my bath, except exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins do I have to take off? For I was longing to, to bathe. So I scratched away for the third time, and I got off a third skin like the other two and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if he actually spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate. So I just laid down flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts, but oh, it's fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself three other times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, much thicker, much darker, much more knobby looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then the story goes on to say he steps down into into the water to bathe. Look, this is Edmund's conversion. This is Lewis's way of saying that we can't save ourselves. We can't peel off our sin. We can't peel off our nasty hide. And if we could actually see it for what it is, it would turn out that it's far worse, far uglier, far more knobby and scaly and disgusting than we can ever imagine. And so Jesus has to do it for us, through us, to us. And then... It's peeled off after three attempts, which is somewhat reminiscent maybe of Peter's, you know, three denials of Jesus or Jesus appearing to him three times or appearing to him on the beach and saying three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then he steps down into the water and is, and is, and is cleansed. And this is Lewis in a subtle way telling a story about a dragon and a boy but in a not-so-subtle way, telling a story about grace and our need for Christ. And this is the way the Chronicles of Narnia go. Story after story after story like this, that in some ways with children are preparing them to understand the gospel. And for adults, preparing them to understand it. Or reminding us in new ways of things that maybe we've become so accustomed to because we've heard the stories over and over again. We read them in a different way and they stir up something within us. All right, I could, could, I could go on. Children's fiction is not the only thing Lewis wrote. Uh, as a matter of fact, he, he published something like 57 works. And those include poems, novels, uh, a science fiction trilogy, uh, multiple children's books, theology, biography, literature. He always longed to be a poet, but it was probably the thing he was the least good at. But there is at least one good poem that he wrote that I find really compelling. And it's called The Apologist's Evening Prayer. And this was something Lewis wrote after his conversion, after he had spent a lot of time debating people about faith. And one of the things he learned through that whole process is that being a belligerent person, being really good at arguing didn't win many people to faith in Christ. Being a stellar intellectual and apologist wasn't particularly effective as an evangelistic tool. So he writes this poem. It's called The Apologist Evening Prayer. For all, from all my lame defeats, and oh much more, from all the victories that I seemed to score, from cleverness shot forth on thy behalf, at which while angels weep, the audience laugh, From all my proofs of thy divinity, thou who would give no sign, deliver me. Thoughts are but coins. Let me not trust, instead of thee, their thin, worn image of thy head. From all my thoughts, even from my thoughts of thee, O fair silence, fall and set me free. Lord of the narrow gate and the needle's eye, take from me my trumpery, lest I die. 
take from me all of that bombastic argument that was part of my apologetic defense of the faith and instead help me to engage people mercifully, compassionately, uh, imaginatively. That's the role that literature played in his life. That's the role that literature can play in our lives. The Bible, as Bradley mentioned, is a story. Isn't it fascinating that what we have in the Bible, really, more than anything, is literature? And God could have chosen to convey his truth to us in all sorts of ways. He could have done it through film. He could have done it in very abstract ways. We could have books of the Bible called sin, salvation, uh, Jesus. But that's not what we have. We don't have abstract concepts. We have stories told by particular people in particular places. We have books of the Bible called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? A collection of stories that tell one story, God's redemption of all, of all people. This is the Bible's literature. It's a collection of 66 books. They're different genres told by different people over periods of thousands of years. Almost in every case, stories that were told before they were ever written down. It is the story of stories. And this is how God chose to convey his truth. It's through those stories that the abstract becomes real. And this is why Ephesians tells us that we are his workmanship. We are his poem. Created by him to do good works, to make poems. We are God's literary masterpiece. And we are called to convey that work of God to others. And literature is a great vehicle by which to do that. Now, a uh, couple of questions, and then Bradley's going to lead us in a small group discussion. Uh, any questions before we uh, transition to this next uh, piece? Yes. Presented to us as opposites. Uh, you know, often we think about, okay, this is true. It cannot be a myth. Or, or this is just a myth. It cannot be true. So, um, now, I was, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this, like this perceived dichotomy. You don't seem to, you actually just gave an example where these two things were not contradictory mm. uh, with, with each other. And uh, so, uh, I, I appreciate that. that would, sure. you, would you be able to mention something? So you're right. It is an unfortunate development of the English language that we now think of myth and truth as opposites. As a scholar, literary scholar for Lewis and for his colleagues like Tolkien, myth just means story. And some myths are historical fact and some myths are not. Um, let me give you an, a good example. So Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son which actually that's what we call the story, which is not what Jesus called it. He said there was a man who had two sons. And he goes on and tells a story about a son who asked his father for his share of the inheritance, and he, then he squanders it, he comes back, the father welcomes him. The older brother doesn't like it. And so if I ask you, is that story true, how, how would you answer it? I mean, Jesus tells the story, is it true? It's absolutely true. If I asked you, is it historic fact? Well, you would look at me like I was strange. I'm asking the wrong question. It, it, that's not the point. The point is, there are prodigal sons all the time, in every culture, in every place. So the story is true. And what Lewis says about the Christian story, about Jesus, about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, is that it is a myth, in the sense that it has truth and beauty and meaning. And it is also historic fact. And that if we see it only as historic fact, then we may miss the beauty and the truth and the meaning of it. And I think that's what Lewis is getting at. And it was the beauty and the truth and the meaning of it that was perhaps more compelling to him than just the pure historic fact of it, which he had been conditioned to discount. But the literature he read opened his heart to the beauty and the truth and the meaning of it.
it's easy to find redemptive value in C.S. Lewis and his stories. What about other stories that weren't written by C.S. Lewis? Can you find redemptive things in those as well? Well, yes. And, you know, next week Ethan is going to talk about film and he's going to show a lot of film clips. It's probably going to be more interesting to you than the part on literature because we love film. There's an award show called the Academy Awards and millions of people watch it even when they announce the wrong movie. There is not an award show for the Pulitzer Prize because, you know, we're somewhat, maybe Americans in particular, we're somewhat bored by literature. But I would say yes. I mean, if you think about the characteristics of most great stories, it's, they have some things in common. It's a common person who's kind of plucked out of his world and placed down in the middle of something that is a life or death situation on which the whole world hangs. And he's got to kind of rise up and do something. It's Luke Skywalker. It's Harry Potter. It's Frodo Baggins. It's the same story. It's just told in a hundred different ways. And so, yes, there are redemptive elements. There are, there are underdogs. There are people who overcome. There are people who suffer deeply and uh, emerge victorious. There are, these are elements, strains, themes of these story that find their way in a lot of different forms, even in secular society. I would tell you that sometimes Hollywood is telling the gospel story. They don't, they don't even know it or wouldn't call it that. Are there some stories that absolutely have no redemptive value whatsoever? Maybe, but I tend to steer clear of those kind of stories. I don't go to those movies. I don't necessarily read those books. Uh, maybe. I don't know if there's something redemptive in every single story ever. But I think most great stories that have appeal are in some ways reflective of the gospel. You could maybe say the same thing about themes in music, because I know you're a music lyrics genius. So maybe music lyrics have the same sort of, uh, same sort of impact. That's correct, they do. <laughs> Other questions? Oh, sorry. Do you have, uh, do you have uh, recommendations or like suggestions for how we could... Uh, um, you know, incentivize or or encourage people to see more power. I mean, to to be more aware of the power that there is in in myth. Often to to communicate truth. Uh, aside from reading the books you're recommending here, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, how how can because you know the reality is usually myth has a very bad reputation among you know in our midst, uh, and and typically. You know, basically piggybacking on what we you were talking mm -hmm. before, um, we are typically about facts, verifiable historical information. So, how can we uh, emphasize the value of myth as communicating yeah. truth? Well, for one thing, I tend to avoid using the word myth, except in the technical sense that it's a story, because it confuses people. And if you talk about Christianity as myth without adding the part that it's also historic fact. People get really uncomfortable. So that's the first thing I would say. The language we tend to use, the story of stories is the kind of the way we've described it here. How do you encourage people to engage? I mean, whenever I have a break from school in between semesters, that kind of thing, when I'm tired of teaching and re researching and all that, I like to read novels. So when, when there used to be things called bookstores, I would walk in and just say, what's the best novel that you've gotten in the last? Now I look it up online, and I generally try to, read, try to read novels, and I try to read the best novels. A couple of years ago, I went back and reread all the things that we had to read in school that I didn't appreciate at the time, like 1984 and The Great Gatsby and Lord of the Flies and The Grapes of Wrath and all those great American authors that you despise because you're forced to read it in grade school. And I loved all that stuff. It was amazing. I think that it, uh, there's a great line from the movie Dead Poet Society where Mr. Keating, who's the teacher, he says, yes, engineering and science, this keeps us alive, but it is beauty and love and that, is, that we stay alive for. And I think that novels in particular help reconnect you to the beautiful things that God has created in this world.
to the fact that God looked at everything that he had made and said, behold, it is very good. And I think that literature, like film, but literature helps reconnect us to the beautiful parts and the painful parts of, of our world. And I think it's a shame that we're becoming kind of a post-reading, a post-literate society. And in many respects, though, I think film is filling in where, where people read less, they see movies more. Uh, they're more engaged. For me, oftentimes, I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest, on Sunday mornings, sometimes the most worshipful thing I experience are th- is the video work that's done. So that has real like power for me in worship. And I, I sometimes feel that when I'm, when I'm reading just regular novels. So read. That's my answer, read. Read good books. I have a question, and then Tate has a question. Uh, would you make a distinction uh, between Christian fiction and fiction? Like, would you call Lewis Christian fiction, or would you just call it good fiction? I would call the Chronicles of Narnia... Christian fiction, but he wrote another novel called Till We Have Faces, which most actual literary scholars think is the best thing he ever wrote, which I would just call good fiction. The symbolism there is far more subtle than you'll find in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I don't personally think of this kind of hard and fast divide between Christian books and non-Christian books. I mean, obviously, there are some books that are obviously Christian and books that obviously aren't. But one of my favorite novels of the past 15 years is The Life of Pi by Jan Martel. An absolutely fabulous novel made into a movie about a kid who's stranded on a boat with a tiger. And I I can't tell you whether that novel is sacred or secular. It is, for me, has some very sacred, it has very religious themes. It, it, It it directly discusses religion, and it has, it was deeply moving to me. And another example of that book, of a, a similar book, is The Kite Runner. These are just regular novels written by regular people, but they, had, uh, they moved me in some ways that strengthened my faith in Christ. I, don't, I can't do the hard and fast distinction between sacred and secular. So you just talked about uh, how we're leaving a lot of people in our culture are leaving reading books as much and just watching things more. As that kind of is happening for a lot of people, what is something, what are we going to miss out on uh, intellectually uh, when we're not reading and we're just watching things? A couple of things. The book is always better. So, I mean, almost always better. There are nuances and there are details that you just don't get in the same way. Uh, Your mind can create far more than your eyes can see. Um, so I think that's one thing you miss out on. I also think that we're rewiring our brains for a digital world in ways that give us shorter attention spans, make it more difficult for us to have sustained reflection on the gospel, to be good thinkers and good Bible scholars and good theologians and good critics of culture. And all of these things, I think, kind of dumb us down in some ways. Because it's all, you know, we're, we're doing this all the time now. And I think that is unfortunate. And it, literally, neurologists tell us we're rewiring our mind for very, very short attention spans and sound bites. And I do think that that causes, causes us to miss out on some of the things that have imaginative power. The best filmmakers, by the way, I think are also incredibly prolific readers. So you talked about how we we can find and see truth in other places in literature. Are there are there potential pitfalls that we should be wary of when it comes to this, um, and safeguards that we should put in place to make sure we aren't uh, we are finding the right truth when we go looking for it in other places right. besides scripture. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm careful about the movies that I see and the books that I read because, you know, there's, it's, it's a weak excuse to just fill your mind with junk for the sake of getting truth. There are too many good, good wells to drink from without having to drink from one that's got poison in it. So I would say that, yes, I'm, I'm selective, but I don't think that... Um, that means that, I, that there isn't a wealth of, of great literature. That said, I think there's a danger in becoming a little too prudish 
because, let's face it, the Bible is, if we were to put a rating on it, it wouldn't be rated G. It wouldn't be rated PG in a lot of places. I was telling Bradley before he read from the children's storybook Bible, I was telling him that when I was a new parent and I had like a two-year-old and I was reading to him books, I rejected all those kind of kids' Bibles and I would just read straight from the Bible. And I was reading the story of David and Goliath to my two-year-old and I got to the part where basically David takes a sword and severs Goliath's head from his shoulders. And I stopped and said, I can't read this to my two-year-old. He'll have nightmares. So there are incredi- there's incredibly graphic material in the Bible itself. So... Um, I am very selective, and I would recommend that you be selective. And as parents, we have to be really selective about what our kids see because there are a lot of poisonous wells out there. But I'm also a little leery of saying things like, never go see a PG-13 movie. I don't tend to be legalistic about some of those kinds of things because I think the Bible is, pushes the, the limits of the comfortable for us in the stories that it tells. So I I tend to think that some artistic freedom is a good thing. Good. Thanks, Matt. That's great. Uh, Let's transition into uh, group time. We'll do that for maybe 10 minutes or so, and then uh, we'll gather back together, uh, read a passage, and then uh, be dismissed. All right, let's wrap up our time uh, by standing together, and we'll read uh, from Ephesians 2. All right, so let's read this together uh, and pausing at the punctuation marks. So, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Thanks. Uh, Come back next week. Ethan Milner talking about the story uh, of stories in film. Oh, that's good. Yes. Thanks, Matt. (laughs) Have a good week.